Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. We're continuing in the series entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. Uh, we are in part six presently of seven parts that we will be doing. Uh, all of the notes and previous recordings for this Bible study series are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And, you know, as we're beginning tonight, it, the scripture comes to me, all scripture is inspired by God. It's amazing. The deeper you dig into God's word, from Genesis to Revelation, everything is there for a reason, for a purpose, and the Holy Spirit can use any part of the Scripture to minister to your life. The Word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And we want to keep praying for one another, as we were on Sunday, that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know Christ better, to open the eyes of our understanding, that when we open up the Scriptures, we wouldn't just be opening the pages of a book, but the Holy Spirit would open up the truths that are contained there. And as we saw in Luke 24, when Jesus opened the scriptures to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us? We all need that experience regularly, our hearts burning inside as the Holy Spirit opens up the Scriptures, enlightens our heart to see things that we've never seen before in the Word of God. I don't care whether you're a brand new Christian or if you've been a believer for 75 years, every time you open up your Bible, there's something new waiting for you there, and the Holy Spirit wants us to have that continual experience. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, we need daily bread, and we need a daily revelation from God's word, something that will set our heart on fire. And I trust that that will happen to you even tonight as we continue in this Bible study. We are looking at the whole picture of Israel coming out of bondage, traveling through the desert, moving into the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. It's a marvelous historical account. Many, many chapters in the Bible are devoted to that history. It's mentioned, of course, chapter after chapter in the Old Testament, but even a number of references in the New Testament to that entire journey or process that God took his people Israel through. But we're not just looking at this as a nice history. We have seen repeatedly it's a picture that the Holy Spirit will use to enlighten our minds to something far greater, our spiritual journey as believers in Jesus Christ. We also begin in slavery in the bondage of sin. We come out through the blood of the Passover lamb. God takes us through the waters of the Red Sea, a picture of water baptism. He brings us to Mount Sinai where there's fire and smoke and the law is revealed to us, a picture of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We go through our deserts and our wilderness experiences, but eventually God brings us into the promised land. And what we are presently studying, when they crossed the River Jordan into the promised land, there were seven enemy nations that God had already warned them about that were residents there. They had been living there for a long time. Some of these enemies that we've studied or will be studying are mentioned in the early chapters of Genesis. So they've been around for a long time in the land of Canaan. <clears throat> but God's time of judgment has now come where he tells Moses and the Israelites, these nations must be destroyed. 
go in, take possession of their land, drive them out, don't make any treaties or peace agreements with them. And we saw last week in the fourth of seven nations a graphic illustration of what not to do. The enemy nation, the Hivites, they tricked Joshua and the Israelites into doing just what God had told them not to do. They made a treaty with this enemy nation, and it came back to haunt them for years and years and years thereafter. These nations, God did not want the Israelites making any compromise with them. He didn't want them to learn their customs. He didn't want the sons and daughters of the Israelites to marry the sons and daughters of these enemy nations. God said one thing, destroy them, annihilate them, wipe them out. Don't have anything to do with them. And we, we learned at the beginning of this part, these nations were involved in all kinds of idolatry, perversions, they were practicing homosexuality, they were even sacrificing their sons and daughters in the fire to false gods. They were evil, they were wicked, and they were perverse. And God wanted the Israelites to destroy them and to take possession of their land. Now we've come to a very interesting nation. This is the fifth of seven nations that we're going to be studying. And again, if you have the notes, we are starting out tonight on page 121. And we're looking at the Girgashites. The Girgashites are particularly interesting because they're not mentioned very often in the scriptures. They're a rather obscure nation, and not a whole lot is told about them but we will look at a couple of things that will give us some clues into what this nation might represent. Again, these were very real nations in the Old Testament that Israel had to replace. They represent for you and me powers of darkness that must be overcome in your life and mine. Sins, spiritual evil that must be conquered and destroyed if we are to truly enter into the abundant life in Christ and to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there are a number of places, at least ten references I've given in the notes, and I'm not going to read all of them tonight, but at least ten times in the Old Testament, in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua and other places, where you find the lists of all seven of the enemy nations. But it's very interesting, actually I misstated that, uh, at least ten places where the lists of these enemy nations are found, but very rarely, only in about three of those lists, do we find the Girgashites mentioned. The key verse that we started this whole section out with, Deuteronomy 7, it does mention all seven nations, including the Girgashites. But it's funny, if you go through each one of those references that are found in your notes, quite often it only mentions six. The, Girgas the Girgashites are strangely missing from most of the lists. They're found in, of course, Deuteronomy 7, and they're mentioned twice in Joshua. Those are the only places where the Girgashites are mentioned. Now, we have to look at the meaning of the name in Hebrew to see if that gives us any clue into what this nation might represent, and I think it does. If you look up the Hebrew word, it literally means... Dwellers in clay soil. Strange name, but that's what it means. Dwellers in clay soil. So although there's nothing directly mentioned in the scriptures about where the Girgashites lived, what their lifestyle was, their name 
indeed indicates something about where they like to live. They like to live in places where there was clay soil. Now, there are a couple of interesting things about clay soil, and if you've ever uh, walked in a field or some place where the soil is predominantly clay, you can identify with a couple of these things. First of all, let's look at the obvious. They were dwellers in clay soil. To me, that immediately speaks about an earthly life. They were dwelling in the earth. Their whole focus was on earthly things, not on heavenly things. We'll look at that in more detail. Uh, clay soil, particularly when it gets wet after a rainstorm or something, it's very heavy. It's very thick. It becomes very sticky, and it can also become very slippery. Clay is a very uh, interesting substance. Very, very fine particles make up clay soil, and it tends to be very heavy. Farmers and gardeners don't like it very much because it's such a heavy soil. Uh, they usually like to mix sand or mulch or other materials in with clay soil because it can be so heavy and so sticky. And when clay becomes wet, it becomes what we would often refer to as mud. It's very sticky. It, it's very hard to walk through. And we actually have an expression in English, uh, when somebody is stuck in the mud, they're, they're kind of just trapped. They're in a very unpleasant situation, but they're stuck. They can't get out of the mud. And this isn't anything that is more than my own observation, but if you listen to the name in English, Gergeshites, even the sound of the name to me, it reminds me of words like gushy, squishy, gergeshites. Even the name to me just sounds kind of yuck, gushy, squishy, sticky, which is exactly what happens when clay soil gets wet. It's very heavy, and I don't know if you've ever driven a vehicle or tried to walk on wet clay soil, but it can be extremely slippery. And we've had experiences in foreign countries, uh, I know in Sri Lanka and also in Central America, where you have a lot of clay in the soil. And unfortunately, a lot of times the roads are just made out of dirt. When those roads become wet, they are so slippery. We had several experiences in Sri Lanka trying to drive up into the mountains uh, in a rainstorm on those muddy clay roads where literally the van began to slide back down the hill. A very scary situation, to say the least. Something else interesting happens when wet, heavy clay soil dries out. When it's baked in the sun or when it's baked in an oven, clay becomes very, very hard. And it's used for things like pottery. It's also used for bricks. It becomes very hard once that clay is, is baked or dried out even in the sun. Now, let's try to tie this in with some scriptures and see if we can come up with a definition of what the Girgashites might represent, spiritually speaking. You may already be thinking about this verse. In Psalm 40, verse 2, the psalmist David, he writes, he, speaking about God, the Lord, 
He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, or the King James says, out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. This one verse seems to confirm several of the things that you can observe about miry clay, about clay earth or clay soil. It was slimy, it was slippery, and David, of course, is speaking in a spiritual sense. He was stuck in spiritual mire, spiritual miry clay. He needed a rescue. He needed for God to lift him out of that slime, out of that slippery, miry clay, and God set his feet on a rock and gave him a firm place to stand. So the clay soil is both slippery and it's, it's imprisoning. It, it traps us, it sticks to us, and we stick to it. It's something like quicksand, if you've ever seen pictures or videos of what happens to someone when they get stuck in quicksand. You, you keep sinking deeper and deeper into this mire, and you can't get yourself out. Someone has to lift you out. The harder you fight and struggle the deeper down into the miry clay you go. So, obviously in this verse, David is not talking about literal mire, slime, or clay. He's referring to a spiritual counterpart to that, where in his own life, he found himself in a situation where he felt trapped, he was slipping around, he couldn't get his footing, he couldn't find a firm place to stand, and he was being sucked down into this filth, this mire, this slimy pit. He needed a rescue, and of course, it was the hand of God that brought him out of that miry clay. Moving into the New Testament, in Second Peter chapter 2, Peter makes an interesting reference to mire, or this sticky, slippery kind of a mud, in 2 Peter 2, verses 20 to 22, where he's talking about Christians who were once in the faith, who have gone back into their life of sin and corruption. We often refer to them as backsliders, and it's taken from this very reference. Let's read Second Peter 2, from 20 to 22. He says, If they, these people in question, have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so these were once believers, they were once Christians, they came to Jesus, and because of Jesus, they escaped the corruption of the world, but they are again entangled in it, trapped, just like the quicksand or the miry clay. They are again entangled in it and are overcome. They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it. Notice again, they knew the way of righteousness. They were once in the church. They were once in the faith. He says it would have been better had they never even become Christians than to end up the way they are now. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Now, verse 22. Of them, the Proverbs are true. And he's actually quoting from the book of Proverbs. 
A dog returns to its vomit. That's one proverb. And a sow, the female pig, that is washed, returns to her wallowing in the mud or the mire. All right. Very clearly, Peter is talking about what we would commonly call in Christian circles a backslider. Someone who was once walking with the Lord, they were once in the church, once in the faith, Jesus did a miracle in their life, they came out of the corruption of the world, they escaped from sin, but then, by their own choosing, they went back into that same life of corruption, again being entangled in it and overcome by it. Peter says they've turned their back on the Lord and on his sacred command, and they're just like, and he gives these two examples mentioned in the book of Proverbs, one, like a dog going back and licking up its own vomit. I don't want to gross you out, but maybe you've seen that. I have. A dog returning to its own vomit, and the second comparison is what interests us. A sow, a pig, that is washed, is now returning, <coughs> excuse me, returning to the mud or the mire to wallow in it. Here's what Peter's really saying. You can take a pig, wash him up real well, maybe even put some baby powder and perfume, tie a few bows and ribbons around the pig's uh, ears or neck or whatever, but because it's still a pig, as soon as it finds a mud pit, it's going to run right into the mud because it just likes to be in the mud, in the mire. That's a classic example of a backslider. Their inner nature was never transformed. They still want that old life in the mud pit, wallowing in the mire. And it doesn't matter how many times you wash that pig, because it's still a pig inside, it wants to naturally go back to wallowing in the mire. Now, putting these two scriptures together, David needing to be rescued out of the miry clay, the backslider just naturally goes back into the miry clay. I'm suggesting that the Girgashites represent backsliding, and I also want to look at it as a second meaning, slothfulness or laziness, coming from the whole idea of getting stuck in the mud. It just sort of traps us. And remember again, all of these references to dwelling in the clay, wallowing in the clay, it speaks of an earthly focus. We're not looking up. We're not looking at heavenly things. We're stuck in the clay, in the mud, in the mire. Now, Let's talk a little bit more about that. Dwelling in clay is the real meaning of Girgashites. So it obviously speaks about an earthly life. Our whole focus, our whole emphasis is just on earthly things. Our mindset, our desire, our interests are only on earthly things. Now, Jesus knew we have to live here on planet Earth. He said in John 17, you are in the world, but not of it. We are like pilgrims and strangers passing through this world with a focus on heaven, 
Our citizenship is in heaven. Our real home is in heaven. We're just passing through. We don't want for our identity to be a dweller in clay. I may live here in Silver Spring, Maryland, but I'm going to be very honest with you. I don't consider myself a dweller in the earth. I want to get out of here. I don't want to spend eternity on the earth. I want to get out of the earth and go to my real home, which is heaven. This Gergeshite spirit tries to blind us to heavenly things and have us put our whole focus just on earth, just on earthly things. So the Gergeshite spirit represents an earthly focus, an earthly mindset, with very little regard or interest for heavenly things. And let me tell you something, that is extremely dangerous, as we just read in Second Peter chapter 2. Eventually, we will start wanting to go back into the mire, back into the things of this earth, and without realizing it, we're getting entangled once again in the corruption of the world. Now, some of these enemy nations overlap. They're all related. They're actually all uh, relatives of one another, with one exception. And so you do find some overlap here. We studied the Canaanites as representing the love of the world, and more specifically, the love of money. Well, the love of money is the root of all the other kinds of evil, Paul told Timothy. And he goes on to say, if you and I are not careful, we can get trapped in that spirit of loving money, just living for money. And he explains there in 1 Tim Timothy 6 how it becomes a snare. We are trapped in that whole vicious cycle of just making money, making more money so I can spend more money, so I can accumulate more and more earthly things. Here's another interesting observation that I made as I was praying over this particular section and zeroing in on this aspect of the meaning of the name, dwellers in clay soil. You may already be thinking about this, but the Israelites, when they were slaves in Egypt, what was their primary occupation? It was making bricks. That's right. In their slavery, they had to make bricks for Pharaoh. Bricks as I mentioned earlier, are made from clay. You take this heavy, wet clay, you can form it into blocks or whatever shapes you want. A potter, of course, shapes it on a wheel into a, a nice pot. But regardless of the shape, once you have formed that wet clay, simply laying it out in the hot sun and drying it will harden it into something very similar to a brick. But if you put it into an oven and actually bake it, it becomes very, very hard. So the Israelites' job for all those years of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, they were occupied with making bricks. And you remember the whole story how uh, Pharaoh eventually punished them by even taking the straw away from them. And it is understood that one of the things that the Israelites had to do was actually stand in that wet clay and stomp it and mix it up with their feet. The straw would have helped them to do some of that. Pharaoh eventually took that away from them. So they were literally stuck in the clay during all of those years of bondage that they were in Egypt. Again, the clay represents the old life, 
the bondage to this earth, the bondage to Egypt, the bondage to our old way of doing things. Now, I'm going to wait until we get to the end of this study, but suffice it now to say, the New Testament message to you and me is do not set your minds on earthly things, on the clay soil. Set your minds on things above. The whole emphasis in the New Testament is to have a heavenly vision, looking up, looking toward our heavenly home, our heavenly inheritance, so that we don't get stuck in the mud of this earthly life. But I want to continue looking at a second possible meaning or interpretation of the Girgashites. And I mentioned it could also represent slothfulness or laziness, where we just kind of get stuck. We even use that word bogged down. Well, a bog is a swamp that's filled with mud and mire. So even that word bogged down would indicate your feet are kind of stuck in the mud. And I think everybody listening tonight can identify with that whole feeling. At some point in your life, you've probably gone through a period, hopefully not too long, but you just felt like you were stuck in the mud kind of depressed, no real motivation. You just don't really even seem to be able to move. You're stuck. It's a very dangerous situation or condition to be in. And the Bible is full of exhortations for you and for me, both in the Old Testament and in the New to shake ourselves out of that condition. Shake off the dust. Get out of the mire. Get out of the mud. And start moving. Don't be held prisoner to this spirit of laziness where you just kind of quit. You're not moving. You're not doing anything. All right. In the Old Testament... And for years, I used the King James Version, so a lot of these verses I memorized and I learned in the King James. And I, quite honestly, I, I still prefer the King James on a lot of these scriptures. So I may be quoting a number of these from the King James. There are two animals that are used throughout the book of Proverbs to represent laziness. And one of them is actually found in the word that I gave you earlier, slothfulness, comes from the animal, the sloth. And I, I've studied these animals. Uh, they're not around here. You have to go to the tropics to find them. But sloths are very interesting creatures. And I don't know why God made sloths. Maybe he made them just to be a visual, graphic demonstration for us of how not to live. Sloths are some of the slowest-moving animals in all of creation. They're extremely lazy, very slow-moving, and some of the sloths... In their entire lifetime, they may not move any further than about a 20-foot radius in the jungle or the forest. And some of them will literally only move a couple of feet in one day. You may have seen pictures of them. Quite typically, they just hang in the trees, and most of the time they're sleeping or inactive, and they just don't do very much. And some of the sloths are so lazy that they literally never even clean their fur. And they have found 
many, many different types of insects, bugs, and all kinds of algae and moss and mold and things growing in the fur of the sloth because they're too lazy to clean themselves. They literally just hang there in the trees day after day after day. They might nibble on a few leaves, but because they move so little, they expend very little energy, and so they really don't need to eat that much. And they're basically just stuck there in the trees. And so when you find the word slothful, and it's used a lot in the King James Bible, think about that animal. So lazy, so inactive, so unmotivated that it just sits there. Doesn't even have the energy to clean itself or to take care of itself. There's a second very slow-moving, kind of a gross creature that most of us don't like <clears throat> that's also used to represent this spirit, and it's the slug. And we'll see in a minute a number of references, particularly in the book of Proverbs, not only to the slothful, but to the sluggard. A sluggard is another word for a lazy person. And slugs just sort of creep along on the ground. They're related to the snail. And they're slimy. They're, they're just kind of gross and they move very, very slowly. So as we read through these Bible verses quickly, you'll notice those two references, the slothful and the sluggard. Just keep in mind the two animals, the slug and the sloth, both representing this spirit of laziness, just sort of, stuck in the mud, not motivated, not moving, not expending any energy or resources, just basically doing nothing. One of my favorites is the first verse we're going to read, Proverbs 6, from verse 6 to 11. And I'm going to zip through a whole bunch of references in Proverbs, so if you don't have the notes... Uh, it might be best just to try to listen and look all of these up. Proverbs 6, starting in verse 6, working down to verse 11. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long will you sleep, O sluggard? When will you arise out of your sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come as one that traveleth, and your want as an armed man. Now, notice the contrast between the ant and the slug, or the sluggard. The ant is always working, very industrious. And as the scripture points out, the, the ant doesn't need a boss telling him what to do. It says he has no guide, no overseer, no ruler. He's self-motivated. The ant is just motivated to work. And by the way, the Bible was never meant to be a science book, but there are some interesting references in the Bible that have now been confirmed many centuries later by science. One of them is in this verse. Listen again to verse 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways. It's the feminine form. Consider her ways and be wise. 
Well, we now know that in an ant colony, which is a social insect similar to bees and other types of wasps and hornets, they live in colonies where you have a queen that, of course, is a female. You have the males, in the case of bees, they're called drones, and then you have the workers. The ones that do all the work, ladies, I'm sure you're shouting hallelujah when I say this, but the ones that do all of the work in the ant colony or in the beehive are the workers, and 100% of them are females. The drones are kind of lazy bums. All they do is mate with the queen and sit around and let the female workers serve them. So this scripture is exactly accurate. Go to the ant and consider her ways. The worker ants are all females. A stark contrast to the sluggard. And what does the sluggard do? He sleeps. How long will you sleep, O sluggard? And it says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. They don't like to work, they like to sleep. So shall your poverty come as one that travels. Now, I don't want to go too far astray tonight, but there are a lot of reasons why people find themselves in poverty. I'm not saying this applies to everyone who is poor or in poverty. But by my experience and having traveled to many, many countries, I can confirm one thing. Many poor people are poor because they're lazy. Not all of them. I know some poor people who are hardworking, industrious people. But this scripture seems to connect in many cases, not in all, a spirit of slothfulness with poverty. And unfortunately, our society, our government, often rewards people for being lazy. You can actually make more money if you just stay home and collect welfare, food stamps, and don't even try to get a job. That's a sad, sad state to be in. If you're able to work, get up and go look for a job. Be like the ant. Don't sit around and notice it says, a little folding of the hands. Just going to sit here and fold my hands. I'm not going to do anything with my hands. I'm going to wait and let somebody else take care of me. It's a spirit of a sluggard. And I would maintain it's the Gergeshite spirit. We need to conquer that thing. God is looking for laborers. God is looking for those that will work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Not be lazy. Not be slothful. Either in the physical, material, earthly sense, and certainly not in the spiritual sense. We need to be self-motivated. Notice the ant goes to work every day and nobody tells him to go to work. He is motivated to go out, gather food for the harvest, and do all of the hard work. We should also be motivated from within by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God. We should want to work for the Lord. We should want to do things for others and not just sit around and feel like we're entitled to other people taking care of us. All right, let's keep going. Proverbs ten twenty six, As vinegar to the teeth... And as smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to them that send him. You don't want to send a sluggard on a mission. You certainly don't want to use him as a messenger, because it may never get there. Proverbs 12, verse 24 
and 27. The hand of the diligent, that's the opposite of slothful, the hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. Verse 27. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. Now you have to get this picture. The slothful man is so lazy. Maybe he went hunting and he shot some game, some animal. He's so lazy he won't even bring it home and cook it. That's the spirit of a slothful man. Proverbs 13.4 The soul of the sluggard desireth, has all kinds of lusts and desires, but he has nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. Many, many times in Proverbs you see these contrasts between the ant and the sluggard, between the diligent and the slothful. Proverbs 15.19 The way of the slothful man is an hedge of thorns, but the way of the righteous is made plain. Proverbs 18.9 He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. This is an interesting scripture. Laziness actually gives rise to waste. We don't take care of the things that we do have. We break them, we neglect them, we throw them away, we don't even take care of what we have. He's a great waster. Proverbs 19.24 A slothful man hides his hand in his bosom and he will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. <laughs> so, the, the idea here is, the slothful is so lazy, he can't even reach out his hand to bring food to his mouth. And if you look online, you can find some videos of actual sloths in nature, and you'll understand this. They are slow-moving. It looks like a movie in slow motion, but it's actually regular speed. It takes so much any energy for them, they would prefer not to move than to even reach out and grab a leaf to eat. That's the spirit that we're talking about here. So lazy, he will not reach out his hand to bring food to the mouth. Proverbs 20, verse 4. The sluggard, now we're back to the slug, the sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg in harvest and have nothing. The idea here is in early spring, when it's still cold, you need to get out, dig up the ground, plow, prepare the field, so you can plant your seeds in early spring and have a harvest in the fall. But the sluggard says, Ah, it's too cold. I'm not going out. I'm not going to plant anything. And then he wonders why in harvest time he has nothing. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Every little circumstance bogs him down and prevents him from doing anything. <clears throat> Proverbs 21.25 The desire of the slothful kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Proverbs 22.13 The slothful man says, There is a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. In other words, he even imagines, makes up reasons and excuses why he shouldn't get up, go out, do some work, look for a job. This is, this is actually humorous. Oh, I, I can't go outside. A lion will eat me. 
I will be slain in the street. So I'll just stay here in my easy chair, fold my hands, and sleep a little more. Proverbs 24, 30, it says, I went by the field of the slothful, and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And if you read the rest of the passage, his whole house, his fences, everything is falling apart because he's so lazy, he won't even take care of his own house, his own farm, his own things. Proverbs 26, verses 13 to 16. Here it comes again. The slothful man says, there is a lion in the way. A lion is in the streets. As the door turns upon its hinges, so doth the slothful upon his bed. Just turns over and over and over and over. Can't get out of bed. The slothful hides his hand in his bosom It grieves him to bring it again to his mouth. The sluggard, both of them are mentioned right here together, the slothful and the sluggard. The sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. Again, these people often have all kinds of reasons all kinds of excuses, some of them very lame excuses like this one. Oh, I can't go out and go to work. A lion's going to kill me. Putting all this together, the Girgashites, they were stuck in the mud. They lived in clay soil. They had a purely earthly life, earthly focus. Their life was spent on slippery ground in sticky, miry clay. It represents a spirit of backsliding and a spirit of slothfulness or laziness. I'm just going to give a quick outline of where we're going to go next time. We, of course, want to look at how to overcome this Gergeshite spirit. Many more verses we could look up, but I think you get the picture. But we want to look at the positive side. How do I overcome this spirit? How do I assure that I never end up like that pig sliding back into the mire? How do I assure that I don't get stuck in the mud with a lazy, slothful kind of an outlook where I can't rise up out of my circumstances and be motivated by God to work for Him, to work for His kingdom. I'll just give you the outline this time, and then we're going to fill in the details next time. How do we overcome backsliding and slothfulness? Number one, we need to seek God and ask Him for a heavenly vision a heavenly hope, and a heavenly vision. We don't want to be stuck in the earth, dwelling in the clay. We want to be looking up. We want to have a heavenly vision, a heavenly mindset, setting our affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Secondly, we just read this in Proverbs, it counsels us to go to the ant, Well, I've done that, and I would recommend, you might have trouble finding ants now, but in the summertime you can find them. Literally, go study this creature. You'll be amazed at how hardworking it is. But more importantly, what I think it's saying is follow, study the examples of diligent people. People who have done something with their life. People who have persevered through hard times. People who have worked through circumstances. And because of their diligence, because of their hard work, because of their perseverance, God has blessed them. 
You know, it still sticks into my mind something I saw years ago. You may have heard me tell the story, but I was ministering uh, down in Trinidad, and we had come home very late one night from a convention meeting. It was way past midnight, and as the pastor pulled in to the driveway of his home, the headlights of the car shone on a fence that was alongside his property. And as we were pulling in, I could see something moving along the top of this fence. And I asked him, can you please leave those headlights on for a minute? I want to go over here and see what this is that I'm seeing on top of this fence. I got out of the car. I walked over to the fence. Here in the middle of the night, way past midnight, like a little army marching single file along this long wooden fence was a particular kind of ant. They're called leaf cutter ants. And each ant was carrying a great big piece of a leaf that it had cut with its mouth, and it was now carrying it much more weight than its own body weight. Each ant carrying one of these leaves, and they're marching in single file, carrying all of these leaves back to their nest. It left a lasting impression on me, and immediately this scripture came back to me, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Ants work day and night when they're preparing uh, to gather in their harvest, because there may be a season coming when they can't work. Jesus said, you better work now, because nighttime is coming when no man can work. Ants understand the seasons. And when you study examples of people not only in the Bible, but even modern-day examples of men and women who were diligent, they sought God, They got a hold of God and his call on their life, and they worked. They worked hard, and God blessed them and gave them a great spiritual harvest. Thirdly, we're going to look at something else, and I just quoted the verse from John 9. We need to realize how short time is. It it relates back to this idea of understanding the season understanding the time. We just have a short time now. And we'll look at a number of verses that say, because the time is short, we need to wake up. It's no time to be sleeping like the sluggard, tossing back and forth in bed, spiritually or physically. We need to get stirred up, we need to get out of our slumber, and we need to be busy with the things of God. The fourth thing we're going to look at is a number of New Testament scriptures that exhort us to keep pressing on, making every effort, because there is a reward at the end. If you and I do those things, we will never backslide. We will never end up like the Girgashites, stuck in the mire, stuck in the clay soil. We will have our feet uh, on firm ground, standing on the rock, in a firm place where we're moving forward with the call of God upon our lives. Let's close in prayer tonight, and we'll tie all this together next time as we look in more detail at how to overcome this Gergeshite spirit. I don't know about you, I don't want my address to be in clay soil. I want to be able to say like Paul in Philippians, we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and that's where we are looking forward to going. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that every word of God is pure. Every scripture 
is inspired by God. And Lord, your Holy Spirit can open up any part of the scriptures to us, to speak to us, to encourage us, to exhort us, even to warn us. And tonight, God, as we're looking at the Girgashites, Lord, even that name, it just sounds creepy, sounds gushy and squishy and something that we don't want to get stuck in. And indeed, Lord, we don't want to be dwellers in the mud like David. We want to have the testimony that he lifted me out of the slimy pit. He brought me out of the miry clay and he set my feet on a rock. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that we would keep pressing on. We would have a heavenly vision. We would not get stuck with earthly things. We would be motivated to put forth every effort in seeking you, seeking your kingdom, and like the little ant, seeking to gather in a harvest in these last days, working while it is still day, for night is soon coming when no man can work. Lord, bless each and every one participating in this Bible study. Strengthen and encourage their hearts. Let them know your promise, O God, that we cannot grow weary in our well-doing, for there is a reward waiting for each and every one of us at the end. Keep us faithful until that day. Bless each and every one and make us a blessing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.